Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Hello, Nudges. Welcome to episode 26 of the OBH podcast. Or maybe we should stop counting now um, after 25. Well, that's certainly what I did. Uh, my name's Mike Hughes, um, and today I am very excited to be sat opposite um, another member of the behavioral science practice team, Mr. Pete Dyson. Hello, Pete. Hello, hello. So, Pete, what are we discussing in this month's episode? Ah, we are talking about the annual. Oh yes, a publication you and I uh, yep. are lucky enough to be the editors of. Uh, in truth, it took a little more than a year to put together, but it encompasses all the good social change work that we've done uh, with brands and with charities and, um, and great organisations. Yeah, so the publication is now online for everyone to download and view at their own leisure. Um, however, we wanted the we thought there was an opportunity in the podcast to go under the skin of the articles a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's only so much you can fit on a couple of couple of sides of A4. Um, and this way we get to speak to the people that worked on it directly. Uh, and we're going to go and lift the lid a little bit. Um, really keen to talk about what didn't work, what the challenges of running the project were, uh, and what we learned from it. Cool. And these are our social initiative case studies. Um, one of the things I think we wanted to do was share what worked with people. So I think we wanted to get our ideas and our insights out into the world, but also maybe what didn't work as well or what we weren't expecting. Yeah, definitely. Um, behavioral science is fascinating and it is a science, but it doesn't mean that you have an exact radar of knowing what's going to work every time. So in everything that we test, we're open to the fact that sometimes things have counterintuitive results or unexpected results, uh, and we're really committed to sharing the things that didn't work. They're, frankly, the things that you learn a bit more from. Mm. Yes. Beautiful that what works is good, but also what doesn't work is also interesting. Um, Favourite article? I think it's going to be uh, the one right at the end. Mm. Um, so our listeners must carry on. Nice. Uh, work that we've... Nice listen bait there, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> work that we did with Costa Coffee, uh, inventing a brand new behaviour. So have you ever recycled a coffee cup in a special bin? Probably not, but uh, it's coming fast uh, and Costa want to lead the way. So we tried to help them. Cool. Okay, so let's go and we are in sea containers today. Let's go and find the authors... Um, and the people who led these behavioural challenges, and we're going to ask them um, about the work that we did. Should we go and find them? Let's go find. Cool. Uh, So I have found Maddie Croucher. Maddie, can you tell us what you worked on for the annual? Yeah, of course. Um, So the project um, I've been working on in the annual is with Christian Aid, Um, And it is looking at how we can increase donations from charity envelopes. Cool. So for people who don't know, what is Christian Aid Week? 
Yeah, so Christian Aid, a bit of background on them. Um, Christian Aid are an international aid and relief um, agency. And essentially what they do is work with lots of countries all around the world to try and eliminate or reduce the causes of poverty. Yeah. Christian Aid Week um, is a week in May every year where there's a big fundraising activity. So essentially what happens is local volunteers from all across the country go door to door um, and drop donation envelopes. Um, so they'll put the envelopes through the door at the beginning of the week and then return at the end of the week to collect them, hopefully with money inside. Cool. So there's a lot of research on charitable giving. What were the kind of insights that we unearthed? Yeah, so the main thing we really wanted to do with these envelopes was two things. So firstly, encourage more people to, to donate in the envelopes. Yep. Um, and secondly, get people who are already planning to donate to mm. donate more money. Um, so... There's actually a lot of behavioural science literature in this space um, in charitable giving. So really starting to look at what are the key things that could drive people to donate in this way and what are, the, um, what are some of the key barriers that we needed to overcome. Um, so kind of after looking through all that literature, we identified ki um, six key principles um, that we thought would drive donations the most. Cool. Um, so the first principle that we applied was called labour illusion. Um, so this is essentially where we tend to value things more when we feel that some effort has been exerted on our behalf. Um, so here we did really simply on the envelope just adding a hand-delivered stamp. So a little stamp in the corner that just said hand-delivered, hand-collected by your local volunteer. Mm. So really showing here that there's real people behind this. It's not just like a yeah. mass marketing campaign. Uh, the second principle we used was scarcity. Um, so we know with scarcity that people tend to be more motivated to act when they have a limited opportunity to yeah, do so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so here we just added a little banner on the envelope that said, we're collecting donations this week only. Uh, so really driving the urgency yeah. to donate now. Yeah, yeah. The third principle we used was cognitive ease. So really here just removing that psychological friction really just making it obvious what this envelope is for. Mm. Uh, I mean, we get a lot of junk mail through the door, so just helping people yes, understand yeah, yeah. that this is an appeal, it's a donation envelope, and we want you to give money. Um, the fourth principle we use was something called affordance cues. So this is a bit more of a design thinking cue. Again, just making the envelope feel kind of more simple and more intuitive to use. Yeah. If you think about kind of push-pull doors, yes, yeah, um, yeah. those are designed in a way that if you need to push it, it's a flat surface. If you need to pull mm. it, it has a handle. So it just feels more intuitive yeah. to use. Um, so doing a similar thing with the envelope here by just changing it from a landscape orientation to a portrait orientation so that the flaps at the top and it just feels a bit more familiar like, yeah. a, like a normal envelope. The fifth one we used uh, was salience. So here, just making something novel, making it really stand out to grab people's attention. So here, drawing people's attention specifically to the gift aid form that was in the inside of the envelope. Um, just really simply saying, boost your donation by 25% for free, just to encourage people to fill out that form. Uh, we thought that could be a really easy win um, to boost donations. Mm -hmm. And the last one, sixth and final one we used, um, was a principle called costly signalling. Um, so here we know that people tend to value things more when they feel like the company or organisation has like exerted some additional cost. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like if we if we think about um, packaging, we tend to value a product more if it's got really luxurious packaging because yes. we yeah, feel like yeah. it kind of has more value. Yeah. Um, so in a similar way to that, we really simply just increase the paper stock. So you slightly thicker paper 
to make the envelope feel a bit more valuable. Which is counterintuitive for the charity industry in a whole anyway. Yeah, this one was really interesting because I think there's a fine line between appearing to spend too much money. Yes. Um, I mean, it can put both donors off, but also volunteers themselves. Mm. If it feels like the charity's kind of wasting money on, yeah. on unnecessary things, that's uh, looked down upon. But here we were thinking, if we can do something as subtle as just increasing the paperweight from like 90 to 150 GSM, could that have a kind of subconscious effect without being like obviously noticeable? Yes. So yeah. we put these into test, we put them into market mm-hmm. over a week. Um, and big sample sizes as well, kind of a huge test. Yeah, so really great opportunity to here to do a randomised controlled trial. So we tested 200,000 of each of those test envelopes, wow. randomly distributed all across the country. Um, and then we had about 5 million of the control, so a really good baseline well, yeah. um, to <laughs> test against. Yeah, so good strong sample size for this one. Cool. Uh, Bum, 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 bum. Can we talk about the winners? Yeah, so the winners. Um, so we we got some mixed and surprising results. Mm. Um, thinking of the best way to kind of share, I think there were four clear winners and mm. probably two surprising results. Um, so the four clear winners increased donations by between 10 and 17%. Wow. So some of these really simple changes um, had a really big impact. So those successful ones were the cognitive ease, so really simply just signalling that it was an appeal, it was a donation envelope. The labour illusion, so adding the hand-delivered stamp. The um, costly signalling, so making the paperweight slightly thicker. And the affordance keys, so making the envelope um, portrait orientation. Those all had a really positive effect. Which is so interesting because the fine, the last two are almost um, kind of less, we're less conscious about them. Yeah, so the two that didn't work in the way we thought were scarcity, um, actually dramatically reduced return rates. So lots of people um, didn't didn't donate um, at all with that one. And we think that maybe that one felt a bit disingenuous. Mm. Like if this is such an important cause why can I only donate this week? Yeah. Um, so maybe people kind of saw it as a marketing trick and it just yeah. just put them off. Um, and the one that was most surprising at all, uh, the one that I actually thought was such an easy <laughs> win, uh, was making gift aid really salient. Wow. And this actually reduced return rate by nearly half. So really turned people off, um, which is quite surprising. Yeah, why, why do we think that might be? Um, kind of some of the reasons we thought might be behind that one is maybe... Maybe it felt too much like a personal incentive. Yes. You know, boost your donation for free. Yes. I feel like I'm getting something personal out of it. Changes the relationship of what we're kind of asking people to do. Yeah. Or, yeah. So maybe it kind of crowds out that pro-social motivation to donate in the first place. Yes. It just makes it a bit of a different ask. Um, so it'd be interesting, I think, an interesting kind of learning for the industry about how we frame gift aid. Yes. Do we use the word free? Yeah, that's true. Um, is there other language we could use instead? How, how, do you, how do you frame free money? It's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, especially in that specific context. I th- yeah, I think I love this case study because it really shows the importance of testing yeah. like our assumptions, our hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Like we should always test them as much as possible. And it just shows how important context is. Like We know mm. scarcity works so well in so many other contexts, but in this context, it has a negative effect. So yeah, definitely testing in context is so so key and and testing things we wouldn't expect like mm. if i'm completely honest i never would have thought thicker paper 
would have a difference, and yeah. it did. So really got to count, uh, really got to test things that maybe feel slightly counterintuitive in the first place. Cool. Um, so, what are the kind of next steps for kind of using these um, insights into progression? Yeah, so next steps, a really exciting opportunity. Uh, we actually ran another trial this year where we started to combine some of these different um, effects. So, for example, knowing that portrait orientation drives return rate, knowing that thicker paper drives um, average donation, can we actually start to combine some of these principles to see if we have an additive effect? Um, so we've just run another trial this year and hopefully getting the results in soon. So wow. be keen to share those with you yeah, in the Yeah, let's future. definitely do that. Let's look at how they've progressed this year. Amazing, fascinating, amazing work. Thanks, Maddie. Thank you. Hello, can you uh, tell me your name, please, and favourite behavioural science principle? Uh, my name's Jordan, and my favourite behavioural science principle has become um, the fresh start effect, where yes. people are more likely to pursue a behaviour or a goal when they feel like there's some kind of um, fresh start or renewed um, temporal location so it's the beginning of the month or beginning of the year or it's just been your birthday or something like that so can you tell us a little bit about the work that you did that we focused on the annual yes so this one is for money advice trust our money advice trust are a charity and they make this awesome um, self-help guide essentially for people who are in debt so the idea is that um, people can access this guide through the internet or through sort of citizens advice bureaus, um, debt advice agencies, etc. Um, and really this has all the information they need and all the references they need for them to work out a plan in order to really um, manage their debts and hopefully get out of their debt. Um, we know it's a massive issue across the UK. They're doing some amazing work already, but essentially the, the issue was that they needed to redesign, update this, this guide to make it more effective. Mm. So part of the issue with it is that perhaps they had all the information, but people weren't necessarily using it as much or as well as they could do. Um, and to make it as helpful as possible for people, we really wanted to embed behavioural science within the guide itself. So how can we get people more motivated to use it? How can we encourage people to keep using it? Um, and how can we make it as helpful for people um, as possible who are in debt? Amazing. Um, what were the specific insights that you found that uh, people in debt, what do they experience? What are the kind of barriers yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think one of the one of the key findings really was that um, people often think, and this doesn't just apply to the debt sector; it kind of applies quite universally. People often think that if we just give people the information, they can then use it effectively, and that's. But especially here, you you kind of assume that this is the information we we're giving people, and they can then utilize it. Um, Actually, there are a few kind of components. Firstly, the ostrich effect. So some people bury their heads in the sand, in the proverbial sand, and don't want to deal with this situation. No. People perhaps feel like this is quite a daunting challenge. We know mm. that it's a daunting challenge. Um, it's not something to be taken lightly. Um, actually, just dealing with it and making the first step and sort of um, saying you're going to tackle it is a, is a big, big ask. So something like the ostrich effect... 
people will just instantly um, dismiss or shy away from engaging anything which recognizes the problem or highlights the problem. So how do you how do you start to overcome that? So a few of the kind of nudges that we put in to try and overcome this were, firstly, um, making it seem like you are already on your way. So, well, it's um, giving people like a, a little boost or a suggestion that exactly, this is the first yeah. step or this is this is step two almost. We know from behavioural science that the further we are to completing a goal, um, the more likely we are to complete it, to, to achieve it. Um, and actually, if you haven't even started, um, it can kind of put people off slightly. What we try to do is at the beginning of the guide, make it feel like you're already well underway. Mm-hmm. Um, a few things we did, for, for example, the beginning of the guide is this quick win section, so things people could do quickly, instantly, um, really give them a sense of achievement straight away. Wow. Um, also just acknowledging people's emotions at the beginning of the guide. So. We know people are coming into this situation with these quite heavy emotions attached to the whole situation. Um, rather than just being quite a rational, here is the information, um, we really want people to feel at, at home and comfortable with what they're doing um, right from the get-go. So acknowledging people's emotions, and you know what, it's okay to be feeling like this. We understand lots of people in your situation have felt like this in the past, um, but actually lots of people have used this guide um, and really, it's really helped them to get better. So wow. I think that's, a, that's probably the two key ones to overcoming that um, and really make people feel like they are on their way and they're confident with with what they're doing cool and i imagine kind of dropout must be quite high on in these kind of programs people maybe after they've got over the ostrich effect intentions will be high and will be good but people kind of working through the program or completing it that's maybe when people start to fall off is there anything that we looked at there to overcome that yeah so throughout the guide what we tried to do is increase what we call cognitive ease so essentially the more simple the easier we can make things to understand to complete to fill out um, the more likely people are to do it um, what we find not necessarily in the guide before but in the certainly the finance sector in general and a lot of other sectors is that can be quite jargon heavy so people companies organizations whatever it might be don't necessarily speak to consumers in the way that consumers um, customers whatever yeah. might speak about things themselves um, actually some, sometimes those words that we use are slightly off-putting they're confusing doesn't really make sense obviously it makes sense to us because we work on it day in day out at work yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. but to, to the average person it might be slightly confusing so anything we can do to remove that confusion um, be it language wise uh, but also imagery so having simpler imagery having using icons breaking up the text, chunking the different sections. Um, We found that really useful. One thing that we kind of did was restructured the whole guide. So actually we found that it made much more sense to to have this kind of three-step structure, which is how people tended to go through those steps anyway from speaking to them, rather than here are the four steps that we think you might do, but actually in the end people do step three, then step one, then step four, then step two, for example. So really playing with people's natural um, behaviours rather than against them. Yes, designed for the human. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, So I've seen it. So this went into a physical book that we produced. And then there was uh, a launch, and now this is a thing that lives out in the world. 
It is, yeah, which is awesome, awesome to see. Um, and it's hopefully, hopefully helping people across the country. Um, it's called How to Deal with Debt, if anyone does want to have a look. Um, you can access it if you just search for Money Advice Trust, uh, How to Deal with Debt. Um, it's available to download on their website. It's also in print um, in sort of debt advice agencies across England and Wales. Um, so, yeah, really exciting and feels like a, a great... Um, so yeah, really exciting and feels like hopefully has a, a really positive impact um, across the country. Uh, how um, this feels like a really interesting area because how we design information can affect how people use it. I think interestingly, where can we take this learning and apply it elsewhere? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I suppose anything, um, or certainly what, what I think, is that anytime we're designing kind of public service um, announcements or things that we're really encouraging people to take positive action on what we're saying, we need to get them to A, listen to it, and engage with it, B, understand it, and then C, take action. Um, and I suppose perhaps the three key takeaways that I would certainly take from this were... Uh, number one, increase cognitive ease, so make it as simple, easy to understand as possible. Yeah. Um, number two, social norms can be really important. So actually if we can in, sort of say to people, you know what, lots of other people have done this or lots of other people are doing this, um, this is a popular choice, you know what, don't worry, this is the thing to do. A lot of the time that can overcome a lot of the inertia that we have find for people. Um, and then thirdly, priming positivity. So I think it can be the default to go to quite shocking and negative um, messages, whereas sometimes positivity can work just as well. So making people feel confident, making them feel like they can do it, um, increasing that self-efficacy within them. Because this feels like actually the this is where frameworks like East are most powerful, I think. And I think that initial work that the Behavioural Insights team did, mm. which obviously focus is around more public policy. It shows the true power of those because maybe it's in its most powerful form when it becomes a checklist. If though, if what we are designing isn't easy to understand, um, attractive, social, and timely, then actually it just makes it really hard. And I think that's kind of what we've done with this project. I did, it does, yeah, I totally agree. I think it's it can be easy to think of behavioural science as kind of behavioural interventions and these kind of things that we're creating and designing. Mm-hmm. Actually, you can embed, and we should embed behavioural science in sort of everything we're doing. So all the communications we're making, anything where there is some kind of person involved, some kind of behaviour involved, um, we can and should embed these behavioural science principles to make them more effective. And I think East, for example, is a great way of doing that. Cool. JB, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Okay, so I have tracked down Pete Dyson. Hello, Pete. Hello. Um, So can you tell us about your case study for the annual? Yes. Uh, It was all about safety. We called it Making Safety Salient. It was when Kimberly Clark, who make tissue products, Kleenex, Huggies, that sort of thing, um, they came to us with a different challenge, not a marketing one, but one of how do they make their factories safer. Um, they've got the ambition uh, to hit zero injuries of any kind each year. And the only way they can do that is to eliminate or minimise human error. So there's only so much safety hardware can do in processes. Ultimately, it's people that are at the end of uh, these injuries. 
I mean, that's interesting. I mean, how do we prevent behaviour which isn't happening? Mm, mm. We gave that a great deal of thought. What we do is look at the higher up the chain to problematic behaviours. Ah, yes. So, uh, ones that we can expect if we can minimise would reduce the instance of injuries. So that some of those are about compliance, about um, ensuring that um, personal protective equipment is worn uh, at all times, but some of it's about actually being proactive and looking at what are the positive safety behaviours we can encourage of teamwork and of personal conduct. Okay, um, and what were some of the kind of standout kind of research behavioural principles we found in this area? Mm. It spanned a lot of different areas. Um, so we were going across habit formation, the science of focus and of attention. Uh, we looked at judgment of risk under uncertainty, inattentional blindness, um, and over into social psychology of teamwork as well. Oh, wow. Uh, what was the output of that? I mean, how did that kind of manifest itself? That was the hardest part, really. You can review each topic of the literature in isolation, mm. but never really reach a thing that you can use. So I think we broke new ground by chunking it into three areas of the science of focusing and prioritization to get people to be as motivated to do the safety behaviors as they are to be motivated for production-based targets. Then the second one of sort of checking in of getting people to be mindful and of understanding that they can supercharge their own skills mm. by slowing down and not rushing and being aware that their emotions make a big difference. And then finally, into the area of teamwork. So you're only as strong as your your team. Um, and some of these are sort of the social psychology challenges of getting people to speak up, getting people to ask for help. Oh, kind of self-policing or... Kind of mm. watch out. That's mm. interesting. Sometimes we've got people of different backgrounds. It's hard to ask for help. Or mm. It's hard to call out someone you've worked with for 20 years yes. and say, actually, you're doing that wrong. Because I imagine a lot of these things must be, how do we get people f from switching off their autopilot? Especially if the people have worked in the same factories for a long time, kind of habit building. Yeah, we talk about that autopilot and system one being a best friend and a worst enemy yes so yeah. it's your best friend because it's the thing that allows you to work really swiftly efficiently um, perceive intuitively things that seem right and wrong um, but it's your worst enemy because when you make those assumptions you can be hampered you don't spot the yeah. uh, different mistakes um and so what were the interventions that came out of the research yeah we were really fortunate um we went to five different facilities across north america spoke to hundreds of operators drivers technicians they co-created the ideas with us we said we're the specialists in behavioral science you're the experts on the ground and we created uh, and piloted about a dozen different interventions we wrote up uh, three of them into the annual um, the first being the hourly board uh, which was as simple as changing from a red pen, <laughs> which sparked literally seeing red on yeah. the production boards to a purple pen. And we saw a 26% redu reduction in feeling pressure to catch up. Yeah, wow. Um, we piloted with great success, and uh, people were really keen to use uh, an adapted padlock 
a padlock that's normally used for locking out and shutting down machinery became a promise uh, to safety and a commitment to safety once people put uh, a little photo of their friends, family. Or that's one. not like a really, one of those examples of changing behaviour at the context to which it happens. Absolutely. And more ways in which you can frame what am I staying safe for mm. rather than I don't want to get injured. Nobody thinks they're going to get injured. Yeah. But why am I, what do I want to get home safe for? And the message almost becomes from your family or from your future self, or which is a different way than it being a poster on the wall from the company saying not to do these things. Yeah, there's a sort of a commitment, a public pledge. Yeah. You're carrying this padlock on your tool yes. belt yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, every day. And the third one was um, a mindful moment. So actually trying to use high-performance psychology to say, before operating a piece of heavy machinery, take 10, 20, 30 seconds to pause, reflect, check your emotions, because this is the one task that can't be rushed, um, and you can get more out of yourself if you're in a calm state. Wow. Um, and as a kind of living, breathing project... There is some more work in this area as well? Yeah, there is. There's one intervention we didn't put in the annual, but has since progressed. Uh, It's really exciting. Uh, It's an area of uh, personal protective equipment. The research has shown that the wearing of hard hats and gloves and safety equipment actually gets people to attenuate their risk upwards. It's called risk compensation. When you feel safer, you end up taking bigger risks. So our intervention... Um, takes a glove and uh, prints on the back of the hand uh, a skeleton to show the bones that that you're protecting. So it's one of those really nice counterintuitive elements of what if we were to get people to feel more vulnerable in order to get them to act more safely. And uh, there's a bit of research around this with the Olympics, is that right? And the... Yeah, they trialled in the Rio Olympics for the first time removing the headgear uh, of boxers. So they used to wear protective headgear and then they trialled not. Turns out fewer concussions and fewer head injuries when you get rid of the gear because the boxers don't go for the head with as hard a punch and they protect their head better. Which is a lovely, really counterintuitive, but a lovely insight. Um, And we we did some some testing with this as well? Yeah, so we... Uh, gave it out to some teams to get sort of qualitative feedback very important and it was well received but those injuries those cut injuries pinching crushing hand injuries are fortunately happening very rarely Uh, so what we do uh, what we've trialed is a virtual online experiment um, where we show different designs of gloves being used to participants online and they rate uh, is this person hammering safely? Could they hammer faster or slower? Um, what kind of risk and vulnerability do you think this person is at? And it turned out that uh, for the skeleton glove treatment compared with uh, normal gloves, people rated the people being uh, particularly more vulnerable. Uh, so perceptions are good. Wow. I think that puts it down to the importance of when you can't test, because obviously you can't just go to a factory and go, can we test some of these things? Um, the importance of testing by as the most rigorous means possible to get s- some data back of what we think can works or won't work. Yeah, in just uh, maybe two months we collected that information. Uh, the survey went out to 500 people. 
uh, and in controlled conditions we could actually evaluate perceptions in a way that we never could in the real world. And what we learnt was actually that these skeleton gloves change vulnerability for tasks involving knives and sharp instruments, but they don't change perceptions of vulnerability if you're using really heavy machinery like a large mechanical yes, yeah, saw. Yeah. So sort of stands to reason, but it's one of those obvious in retrospect of course the glove is not going to change perceptions of vulnerability when the size of the risk is so massive mm. uh cool um kind of next steps then for this project where are we at the moment yeah this project continues um kimberly clark continues to roll out the ideas the measurement framework continues to help us pilot it and we're now working with uh, uh another really large brand uh and manufacturer um, to trial and tweak ideas further. Cool. Um, okay, so turn off system one, stay safe, test as much as possible. They're your three medals. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, Pete, thank you very much. Let's go and see if we can find someone else. Thanks, Mike. Hello sir, can you please tell me your name and your title? Hi Mike, I'm Jack Duddy and I am a consultant at the Behavioural Science Practice. And what was your behavioural challenge for the annual? Uh, This behavioural challenge was working with Worcester County Council in order to reduce what's called fairer charging debt uh, for people who are receiving social care, uh, domestic social care, essentially making it easier for people who are receiving care in order to pay their bills by optimising the communications and making it um, information as clear and as easy as possible in order to get people to pay. Uh, and what were some of the psychological issues, what were the, the barriers that we had to overcome? Through a combi analysis that we applied working with Worcester is there were really three main barriers to them opening the communications yeah. in the first place um, and actually going forward to pay. Uh, the first was opening the letter um, the letter came in just kind of white standard envelope. So uh, for a person who's receiving care, they m- may not be the person who actually opens their own mail. So yeah. there's no way yeah, for them yeah, to yeah. know if that is a, a bill or something that they really should be paying attention to. Um, the second is uh, the second barrier was more of a motivational barrier in that uh, we had to overcome in order to get people to accept that this is something that they actually have to pay for. Uh, it's outlined in the initial invoice that you're agreeing to pay and uh, contribute towards your uh, domestic care, but this isn't highlighted well enough, and it's um, also some a small subsection of people don't believe that domestic care is something that they should pay for in the first place. Yeah. Um, and then finally, the third main barrier was actually going forward and making a payment, which is the best method to pay, which is the easiest method uh, to pay. Uh, some of the uh, call, uh, some of the numbers in which people had to call were actually not no longer in use. Um, so there were some significant barriers that we had to overcome uh, in order to to get people to pay. Um, and we put this to trial. We did put this to trial. We did. Um, we successfully. What well, the the most successful. Um, intervention that we had was uh, increasing uh, direct debit sign-ups by 61%, which was one of the uh, main challenges that Worcester County Council wanted us to achieve. Because direct debit is the easiest and simplest way to pay, 
if they have a direct debit set up, the chances are much less likely that they'll have these uh, uh, debt building and building and building to the point where they just simply yeah, can't pay yeah. the, the the amount. So that was one that we were most proud of. I think um, 61% increase, which was uh, which we achieved by um, uh, applying what we called an effort scale uh, to some of the communications. Great. And what does that look like? Uh, the effort scale is uh, where we took the four or five uh, methods of payment and we ranked them in terms of not where where they were originally was just simply description of how to pay via that method uh, but there was no indication as to which was the best method which was the preferred one or which one was the easiest one so what we did is uh, we ranked them in terms of the perceived effort that it would be if someone was to choose that method of payment yeah. so we uh, added a for example, if someone wants to pay via cheque, which I'm sure these the, the demographic of elderly people, that's quite a common thing, uh, that's actually quite a effortful process involving having to write out a cheque, go to the bank, etc. So that was one of the, uh, that kind of got a full score on the amount of effort um, it would take to, uh, to, to pay via that method. And then uh, direct debit being the easiest, we used uh, and we chunked it up via colour, with the easiest being green and the hardest being red, um, adding the duration in terms of minutes it would take to actually pay. Um, we chunked and separated direct debit as the easiest one, using green um, colouring, and said that that was the easiest, quickest, safest method to pay. And that's where we managed to get the increase of 61%, which is, a, I think, a really great result. And hopefully... Um, empathetically will stop um, vulnerable demographics in the future from building up there. What didn't work? Yeah, good question. <laughs> um, so what didn't work was the um, first letters that we'd send out, the first reminder letters yeah. in order like to the get invoices. people to pay. The invoices, yes. So the invoices um, highlighting um, what they had to uh, what they had to do, and then the reminder letters as well. Um, so the first letters that they got in terms of uh, being billed, we saw no significant increase there. Yeah. Um, what we, when looking at the data, we found that the same number of people, there was there was no uh, there was no significant difference, no real difference. The same number of people who would have paid in the first place simply paid. So um, even though the uh, communications were in a um, kind of skeleton state in the first place in which there was kind of uh, no real design chunking saliency yeah. nothing really applied to them were, it was quite complex and then once we applied um, uh, behaviourally informed design and, and trying to make things easier to process uh, there was still no shift in yeah. behaviour which was really interesting which um, in a way makes you think that the people that are going to pay in the first place were always just going to pay regardless yeah. of the information that's um, on the on the page and then it was uh and then the reminder letters, um, we saw uh, slight increases with, but it was the method of payment that was the main takeaway and main win for this project, I think. This particular case study was probably the smallest sample size mm. in um, this year's <laughs> annual. Um, what, what challenges does that throw up kind of... <clears throat> only certain amount of conditions because obviously everything has to have significance of yeah. um, of the results that we publish um, so what are the challenges there because the those restrictions can define what you test mm. 
Absolutely. And in an ideal world, we would have been able to test... Uh, what we ended up testing was uh, we wanted to test three separate um, conditions, which was increasing the ease of processing information, increasing the perceived value of service, and the third one being inc uh, increasing the um, uh, consequence of non-payment. And what was the sample size? sample size was 1,100. So, I mean, yeah. So, how many conditions with the control? Like, two conditions? We how many conditions? Yeah, uh, we had two conditions. Yeah. Um, the thing is, with the complexity of the way that the letters set out, uh, sent out, and with having those conditions, we ended up having a quite a small sample size. So, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Some of the sample sizes uh, uh, were kind of around almost around fifty people. Um, so that's that's one thing that adds a layer of difficulty in terms of uh, in an ideal world, you want to be able to test. All of, your, all of your conditions with maximum sample sizes, but that was one of the difficulties we had to overcome. We actually had to um, whittle our conditions from three separate conditions down to two in order to um, gain significance in getting the right amount of uh, people in the test. Cool. And finally, what surprised you the most? What surprised me the most? I think what didn't work surprised me the most in that there seemed to be that no matter what information you put on a page some people will pay yes. and just will yeah, pay yeah. there'll be that demographic that pays already I think um, I was also um, pleasantly surprised with uh, the increasing the um, ease of payment through the effort scale uh, I think by adding another layer of information that people seem to not have and taking that kind of empathetic understanding of uh, giving people uh, clear guidelines as to what be, might be easiest uh, way to pay was a nice surprise in order to get significance there, um, but yeah. Apart from that, it was a it was a uh, slightly challenging uh, project, but one that was always for a uh, a good cause in terms of because we've all got nans and granddads and stuff who might be yeah, receiving yeah, domestic I mean, care. Yeah, I mean, just being empathetic to the audience. Yeah, is absolutely important. Uh, yeah. Cool. Cool. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much. Let's do the behavioural science handshake. Okay. Hello, can you tell me your name please and project that you worked on for the case study for the annual? Hey Mike, my name's Jordan and uh, one for the annual was uh, one we did with Costa, Costa Coffee in conjunction with Heathrow Airport and essentially their issue was that they want people to recycle more and specifically recycle coffee cups. Um, Costa have got this great initiative where they want um, as many people to recycle coffee cups or as many coffee cups recycled um, as they give out each year. So as part of this they were hoping to run a trial or um, run a project in Heathrow Airport looking at well if we can get people in one of the sort of busiest um, environments that we could perhaps test in, if we could get people in Heathrow Airport to recycle their coffee cups um, then we can use those strategies uh, across the UK, so in kind of malls, shopping centres, as well as obviously Costa stores. Wow. Um, a lot of uh, work has been done nudging within recycling. However, context is king, as we like to say. Context so what were the particular um, context within the airport that we needed to think about? I think one key thing was that um, it's just incredibly diverse and multicultural. Mm. So, whereas oh, language was exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas in other places, you can perhaps get by with having a certain amount of language and text that people have to interpret, read, understand. Um, really, in the airport, it's a bit of an extreme 
user analysis in that uh, some people may not speak English at all. And really, the more you can rely on intuitive, more system one, quick, easy things to understand, mm. imagery, for example, rather than what they did have before, which quite um, text-heavy signs, um, then the easier it would be to encourage people to do a certain behaviour. So did you do some analysis of the areas of the bins? Yeah, we conducted an environmental audit. So we um, sort of got shown around the whole of Heathrow Airport. I think it was all, all of the terminals. Um, looking at just what facilities are there at the moment. So what bins are there? What signage is there? Yeah. Are the bins even together? So do they have landfill bins? Do they have them next to the recycling bins? Yeah. They have, in a nutshell basically, they have specific coffee cup recycling bins um, in place at Heathrow Airport, but um, there are significant drawbacks to them, basically. Yeah. They're quite difficult to understand, they're not intuitive, um, it's something that is quite hard to A, know what to do, and then B, kind of follow through with it, especially when people are kind of in a rush, or it's really not the, the top of your mind when you're at the airport yes. recycling. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And they were just finding that the volume of recycling they're collecting successfully was very low, either because people are putting their coffee cups in the landfill bin or because people are putting their landfill waste into the coffee cup bin, and that just contaminates it and means you can't recycle anything. So um, just just changing a few simple behaviours to make people recycle correctly. And I suppose when there's a lot of different things going off, a little, a lot of different barriers, do you have to almost focus in... Because the, the next stage, obviously, is where you come to prototype design and to design. Do you focus on certain key barriers and then design for them, or do you try and do something that encompasses more? I think what so what we tried to do was also speak to people um, at the airport. So we interviewed people and just really find out, as well as what they thought about the facilities and did they understand the bins and how did they kind of um, respond to them. Also just what are their attitudes to recycling in general. I think it's easy to assume that people have a desire to recycle, um, yes. which is generally true in yeah, this country, yeah. um, but especially like we were saying, you have quite a multicultural um, population at the airport, naturally. Yeah. Um, and actually, to, to a lot of people, recycling or contamination in the recycling wasn't necessarily an issue, um, either because they didn't weren't that bothered about recycling, which was rare, um, but more of the time they kind of think, well, if I'm putting it in a bin, surely yes. that's good. Um, but actually, if you're putting a crisp packet in a recycling bin um, or food in a coffee cup bin, that could have a, a damaging effect. Cool. Um, so then next into the design stage? Next into the design stage, or the, I suppose the ideation stage. So we came together with Costa and Heathrow, um, also Grundon, the waste collection team, because um, they're sort of the experts in the, the actual uh, waste management processes and came together and really just tried to come up with as many ideas as we could, not only for optimising the actual bins and what people are using in the airport, but also everything around it. So everything from signage to what we could put up in store, what the barista says to you when you, you order your coffee. Um, can we change the coffee cup itself? Can we change the waste collector's trolley? Also the complete user journey, I suppose, of buying a cup to disposing of it. Exactly, yeah, and we sort of mapped out this journey and we thought where on this... Where, which stages in this journey can we actually intervene, um, mm. show people a message, or just change the environment slightly to make it more likely that people will then recycle? Cool. Um, so what were your kind of favourite proposed designs? Um, so the two two that we kind of felt were, were perhaps the strongest were um, 
slightly updated or optimized bin designs, so just making it really, really clear what people should do, make it really intuitive. Um, for example, we had lots of little tweaks like um, see-through tubes so people can see the coffee cups that are inside them. Um, it's the implicit social norm that people mm-hmm. here are recycling. Um, can we have stickers on them so even when it's empty you still have that norm? Um, using affordance queues at the top. So if affordance queue is kind of, if you've got a handle on the door, it implies that you should pull the door. You don't necessarily need a pull sign. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. The, the design itself is doing that. Which so gets here, over the language. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you have a slot at the top of the, the tube that is lid-shaped, it encourages people to put your lids in there. Ah, if it has yes. a funnel, it's yeah, encouraging yeah. people to pour their liquids in there. Um, so tiny little tweaks like that. Um, using behavioural science to just make it more intuitive for people. Um, so yeah, a couple of great sort of optimised or developed bin designs. Um, also some other lovely tweaks. So we had, for example, in in stores people would ask, would you like a disposable cup? Actually, can we just slightly reframe that? Can we say, would you like a recyclable cup? Ah, lovely. Would you like a recyclable like... cup for your coffee? Um, suddenly, almost making it like a default, almost. Yeah, if... disposable sounds like you're just going to throw it in the bin. Recyclable just primes you to think mm. this, this can be recycled and I should recycle it um, so everything from these, these tiny tweaks through to completely um, redesigning or making sure that the uh, waste systems are all colour color coordinated so liquids equals the same colour in the bin and in the waste collectors trolleys etc um, and just being really salient and really clear with the, the bins that are around so if you've got a bin have the recycling bin next to it to make it as easy as possible for people um, really clear signage saying what should and also shouldn't uh, go in each bin. Mm. So a plethora of different ideas. Yeah. So this this work was part of a bigger challenge as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it's just quite nice to do something that will hopefully be kind of scaled up and have a difference across the country. Um, yeah. So Costa, uh, I think they were aiming to recycle 100 million coffee cups um, over the next kind of year or two. Um, and really just the scale of the challenge that they're facing um, is quite enormous. I think the um, over 7 million disposable coffee cups are used every day, or recyclable coffee yeah. cups, um, and less than 1% of them are currently recycled. So the scope for really having a, a big impact here, even though each single coffee cup isn't much, but when you think of that many coffee cups being used, um, the potential to the big impact on the recycling and the, the waste efforts here are enormous cool Jordan Book thanks so much for your time thank you Mike so uh, there we are five case studies in more detail understanding the specific challenges in each what worked uh, but like we said at the top of the podcast what didn't work as well because that is just is important for understanding human behaviour. Um, so you can find your copy of the annual if you go to ogilvyconsulting.com forward slash r dash thinking. You'll find it somewhere on the website. Um, download your copy um, and to let us know what you think. Here is to uh, the Behavioural Science Annual 2020. So watch this space for that.